Good morning, church. Thank you, team, for that wonderful time of music ministry, and thank you, Joe, for that uh, very meaningful time of prayer that uh, we had together as a congregation this morning. We have a new memory verse. It is the month of March. It is beautiful. I think the Robins are a little confused. They're not quite sure what to do, but some of you are seeing them again, and it's still a little cold. Uh, but it's March nonetheless, and here it is a week before Missions Conference, so uh, we can say our monthly memory verse together as it comes up on the screen. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Exodus 20, 20. Indeed, we are drawing closer to the giving of the law, and we have walked with the nation through much, and we're in a section of Exodus, where we're exploring what God prioritizes when he forms a nation, as we watch him bringing together and forming the people of Israel into a nation. And today we're going to explore the things that he prioritizes. We're going to learn uh, much about his presence and his promises as we look at his word together today. We're in Exodus chapter 18 and 19. I would invite for you to turn there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them on or open them up. Exodus chapter 18 and 19. And we're going to read the first 12 verses of Exodus 18 to begin our time together today. Before we do, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, what a wonderful time to be able to gather around as a community of people that you have called together. We get to huddle around your word. We open it up. And Lord, through this time, your spirit is working. He's alive. He's active through the pages of this text that you've given us, this glorious gift uh, that we can surround and study together. We thank you for it today. Lord, in it there are images many images that stir our imaginations and our minds in ways that communicate to us that you are with us magnificently, powerfully, and effectively. Sometimes, Lord, it is your presence and the mystery of it on the mountain. And other times, Lord, it's through the voices of the mentors and the guides that you place in our lives. And today, as we look at your text together, we're going to see examples of both, the voice of the mentors and the guides that you place and the power of your presence on the mountain as you draw us into promises that you've made. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for Jesus and we just pray that you would use this corporate time of study as we engage your word together to help to form us and shape us into the people and the community that you would want us to be. And we give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus 18. Verses 1 to 12. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eleazar, for he had said, the God of my father 
was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All of the hardship that had come upon them in the way. And how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. In that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh. And has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Wow. The text really wants us to know that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. Right? Over and over and over again. Wonderful. And before the people will be called a kingdom of priests... Moses will be reunited with his father-in-law. His father-in-law who is a Gentile priest from the land of Midian. Traveling with Jethro is Moses' wife Zipporah and her children. And the meaning of the children's names are a heritage and a testimony to Moses' own life. Moses is a foreigner. His son's name is Gershom. Moses is a man who needs the help of God. His other son's name is Eleazar. He needs God's help to make it through the wilderness that he finds himself in together with the nation of Israel. And Jethro is going to play an incredibly significant role in Moses' development as a leader. So important. But before we go there, it's worth noting that the language of chapters 18 and 19 in Exodus is loaded up with hints that take us back into the narrative of Abraham. Specifically, chapters 14 and 15 of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham would be visited by a mysterious character. Anybody remember his name? Long name. Melchizedek, right? And as we will soon discover, Melchizedek and Jethro share many significant similarities. And then in Genesis chapter 15, God visits Abraham through smoke and flame to make a covenant with him. In Exodus 19, the next chapter that we'll get to, we will see that once again, God will visit his people through smoke and flame to make covenant with them. But before we go there, we are witnesses to this glorious reunion. Moses has the wonderful experience and opportunity of recounting with his family all of the miraculous events that the Lord had accomplished for his people. It's interesting. Jethro is a Gentile man who knows and worships Yahweh. 
He blesses the Lord and Moses, and he brings a burnt offering and sacrifice to present to God. Jethro's faith and his practice is an indication for us that God was not only active and revealing himself among the Hebrew people. And though Israel will be a chosen nation through whom God will work out his covenant promises, in the presence of Jethro, we're reminded that God is active in revealing himself to others who will be part of Israel's narrative as well. The promises of God are alive. They're active. They're available even to the Gentile, the foreigner, and the immigrant. In fact, in this instance, God is going to use this foreigner, this man Jethro, from the outside of the Hebrew camp to teach Moses some very important life and leadership lessons. After they rejoice and they worship God together through the sharing of sacrifice, Jethro continues to worship by remaining close to Moses, making observations regarding Moses' leadership patterns and sharing his wisdom with Moses. And Moses is going to continue to worship through his active presence and leadership with the people and his humble submission to the wisdom and advice that he's given by his father-in-law. All of chapter 18, the whole chapter, is a testimony to practicing worship and holiness. What we are reading in these texts is what it might look like for us to live into our holiness and practice the habitudes, the habitudes, that's a new word. (laughs) We might have habitudes, that's a good one. I'm going to keep that one. I like that. (laughs) The habitudes. I need a few good habitudes. The habits and attitudes of our life as worship. Pick up in verse 14 with me. It's amazing what happens here. When Moses' father-in-law, again, Jethro, saw saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is it that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Imagine if we just did this all day. If I just stood up here and we just all sat around and you came and shared problems and issues with me and I tried to solve them. It wouldn't go so well for me or for any of you. I promise. Let's not do that. Moses is alone. He's by himself and So very important, he is wholly inadequate to meet the needs of his people. And Jethro takes this opportunity to warn Moses that he is never going to make it if he continues to lead in this manner. He must give his leadership away. Delegation is an incredibly useful and versatile tool in the toolbox of any successful leader. Look at verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both you and these people who you are with, for this is too heavy a burden for you, and you're not able to do it by yourself. Now listen to me. I will give you advice, and may God be with you. You be a representative for the people of God, and You bring their disputes to God. 
warn them of the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Jethro is direct in trying to handle, assess, and adjudicate all the matters among the people. Moses is neither doing himself or the people any favors. Not at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Moses is frustrated. Remember, we saw that last week. He's on the path to burnout, and he's frustrating his people and wearing them out as well. He's trying to do too much. You ever find yourself in that place? Sometimes we do this with the best of intentions. We care so much. Moses cares. None of us are going to argue that. And we try to do so much, too much. Jethro is saying, rather than trying to solve all of the people's problems and discern all of their cases and hear all of their concerns, what Moses needs to embrace is his role as an intercessor and a mediator. He needs to take it to the Lord. As a leader, our priority is not to solve problems or adjudicate matters. Our priority is to take the needs, the problems, and the concerns of the people before the Lord and seek his wisdom and guidance. Embracing his role as a representative or a mediator between God and the people, he can then focus on warning the people to listen to God's laws. And he can rehearse with them how to walk in both his ways and the works that he was giving his people to do. And in this, Moses is directing the people's attention to the sufficiency of God's word prioritizing living according to God's ways and remaining focused on the work that God has given us to do rather than putting out fires and solving all of the issues and concerns that are continually being brought to his doorstep. The privilege of spiritual leadership is the regular opportunity that we are given to remind and to rehearse with the people of God the truth of God, and the ways of God, while remaining focused on the work that God has given us to do. And friends, this is a privilege that is best experienced when it's shared with others. The church shines and has great effect when leaders work together to build one another up in Christ Jesus. I love this quote by... Pastor Dwight Moody, he said, quote, it is better to set a hundred men to work than to do the work of a hundred men. You do a service to a man when you evoke his latent faculty. It is no kindness to others or service to God to do more than your share in the sacred duties of church life, end quote. Perhaps Moody was drawing his sentiments From Jethro's words to Moses, pick up with me in verse 21. This is what Jethro says to him. Talking to Moses, he says in verse 21, But you choose from the people capable men, God-fearing men, men of truth, those who hate bribes, 
and put them over the people as rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. They will judge the people under normal circumstance, and every difficult case they will bring to you, but every small case they themselves will judge, so that you may make it easier for yourself, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all of these people will be able to go home satisfied. Mm. What Moses is learning, what we are learning here, is that it wasn't only on the mountaintop where Moses needed his leaders to help hold up his hands. That one event was an image that was to image or characterize the entirety of Moses' leadership over the people. The healthiest way for both Moses and the nation to come through the wilderness was for Moses to learn and practice this leadership insight from Jethro. And friends, I had to be honest, it's the most effective way for us to make it through. You know, it's, only, it's almost been, only and almost been five years since the Lord called us here to CNBC. That feels like it went really quick, doesn't it? And I remember on the night that we did uh, I don't know what they call it. There's a formal name for it, but it was like a pastoral, like you're the new pastor celebration. I don't know what we call that. There's a title for it. But anyway, we had a little gathering up in the Lefevre Hall, and one of my mentors came that evening, and he pulled me aside. And his words, they'll never leave me. Uh, we all have voices from mentors in our heads that stay with us. These are God-appointed people, men and women, that speak into our lives at significant times, and their words anchor themselves into our souls. And he said to me, he said, the greatest gift that you can give this congregation is the gift of your own insufficiency. The greatest gift that you can ever give this congregation is the gift of your own inadequacy. The greatest gift that you could ever give this congregation is the gift of them knowing that you are not enough but he is. And those words have stuck with me. And they are resoundingly and astoundingly true every single day. Every day I wake up in our family and in the role that I have here, uh, the privilege I have here to be your pastor, I'm reminded of my own inadequacy to do this work. I need the Lord. And the Lord has planted right around me very qualified people to help hold up my arms. And they do a magnificent job. And I'm thankful for each and every one of them. Each and every elder in this congregation, staff member, former elder who has served, uh, volunteer Doing this work together is a privilege and an honor. And it doesn't happen if we're not doing it together. I'm not enough. 
friends, I am not enough. The remedy for Moses' inadequacy and for his burnout involved him listening and applying Jethro's words. It's one thing for me to hear those words up in that Lefevre Hall, I'll just call it, multi-purpose area. But it's another thing to actually apply them and to live like they're true. And I get it wrong a lot. Moses did too, by the way. And so do a lot of the other church leaders. But there are times that Moses gets it right. The remedy for burnout was for Moses to listen and to apply. And let's pick up in verse 24 and discover that that's exactly what he's going to do. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. One observation that we can make from this text is that Jethro is is a man who himself was practicing what he was preaching. Right? He was rather industrious. Jethro had many daughters. We learned that at the beginning of the book. He had many flocks of sheep. He had a great deal of land to manage in Midian. And he had left it all in the hands of capable leaders while he traveled to meet his son-in-law in the Sinai wilderness. Jethro, he's not a helicopter parent. We know them. Right? He's not going to hover around Moses and make sure he's not micromanaging. Let me stay here. He's not a man with an agenda who wants a position over one of these tens or fifties or hundreds or thousands. He's none of those things. He's going to share his wisdom. He's going to give guidance. And then he's going to return to handle his affairs in the place that God had planted him. And when a leader receives wisdom that comes without strings attached, wisdom that is free from any hidden agenda, it is a possession to be treasured. And this is significant wisdom in Moses' leadership. Now, Old Testament scholar John Salehammer has noted the numerous similarities between Melchizedek in Abraham's narrative, and Jethro in Exodus. I'm going to leave that up. You're not going to be able to write it down. If you would like a copy of it, you can email me or get your phones out and snap a picture of it, and that might be helpful as well. Uh, But that's the best way that we're going to be able to do that this morning. But it's really incredible how this portion of Scripture ties us back in to Genesis 14 and 15. And so Moses is equipped with a fresh vision for the organization and the governance of the people. And he's going to continue to lead the people right to the base of Mount Sinai. There's going to be some good things that happen. Some really good, powerful, amazing things. And some bad, by the way, that happen at the base of this mountain. There is a way 
for the people to thrive in both the wilderness and in the land of promise that they will be in one day. A way for the people to rightly relate to God and one another. A way for them to be set apart from every other nation in the world. And God is going to soon show them that way. Using the common political language of the day, language that would have been very familiar to the people, God is about to initiate a covenant, a treaty with his people. And that's where we go as we come to chapter 19. If you want to turn there, we're going to start in verse 2. The people set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Isn't that beautiful? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all of the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Israel is in its earliest stages here of formation as a nation. In this image of a baby eaglet, starts to capture our imagination. When a baby eaglet learns to fly, do you know how it learns to fly? It falls out of its nest over and over and over again. And any of you ever seen an eagle's nest? They're usually typically built where? Pretty high, way up. And that eagle, or that eaglet, that baby, it's fallen a long way down. And guess what happens? Before it can be injured, before it can hit the ground, its parent swoops underneath of it, wings wide open, and catches it on its wings and bears it back up to safety into the nest. And this figurative language that's used here in verse 4 paints this picture of Israel stumbling or falling out of Egypt. They had struggled, remember? Grumbling, complaining, Yelling at Moses and Aaron and their leaders, only to be caught up in the wings of the Lord and brought into the safety of his presence here in the wilderness at the foot of Sinai. God had done a mighty work, and what was expected of the people was that they would be obedient and faithful, loyal to God's words and God's ways. That's what he was asking of his covenant partner as his chosen nation that they would be a people who were obedient and faithful to God. And if they were, then God promised that he would relate to the nation in three distinct ways. As covenant partners, God would envision his people as a treasured possession, as a kingdom of priests, and as a holy nation. And isn't it amazing? We, we get to sit here today or at home, wherever we're at, 
listening, and, and we get the, the pleasure of, of kind of knowing the rest of the story and knowing the history of the nation throughout the Old Testament. And if we do, we should be captivated by this image of God's abundant grace and mercy as he bears with his people even as they fail to live up to their end over and over and over again. He is a merciful God. Chapter 19, again, is charged up with a great amount of activity. There are all kinds of incredibly mysterious and wonderful things taking place in this chapter. There are various comings and goings all over the place, illustrating the nature of this relationship, God and man, God with his people and his people with him. And in verses 7 to 9, we should be encouraged to find that Moses is practicing the leadership habit that he learned from Jethro. He rehearses God's message with the elders of Israel. And they take it and they deliver it to the people. And the people respond in this manner. It's amazing. All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Exclamation mark. We can do it. <laughs> it, it. Kind of when I was reading it this week, I thought of Peter, you know, and he was just so like, yes, Lord, yes, yes, yes. And then, oh, no, no, oh, no, Lord, <laughs> you know. Oh, Lord, I'll never do that. No, no, never. Oh, get thee behind me, Satan. What? You know, it's like, oh, yes, all that you do, all that you've commanded, we will do. Oh, we know the rest of the story because it's our story right all of us at times struggle to walk in the ways that God has called us to the Israelites think that they're ready to demonstrate their obedience and walk by faith in this wilderness in union with Yahweh the covenant keeping God they think they're ready to keep their end of the covenant and as Moses returns to God with this message the people are ready. God promises to come in a dense cloud so that the people could hear and know and that they could recognize Moses as a trustworthy leader to help guide them in fulfilling this covenant. And what comes next is an incredibly special moment in the history of the nation. The contents begin here in chapter 19 and really they carry all the way through the end of chapter 24. You know, uh, this year... I'm going to get my numbers right. Give me a second. Yes, I'm right. Okay, this year will be 20 years of marriage for <laughs> Sheila and I. I. Hey, I had to make sure I get that right before I say it. Guys, you understand, please, right? <laughs> 20 years. And, and I can remember the, the morning of our wedding as vividly as anything. I was eating a lot. <laughs> I was nervous, very nervous. But you know, that day, oh, it had come with so much preparation. Both of us had to do so much to make ourselves ready for what was special in that moment. Uh, some, one of the highlights, I remember sitting in a room with our, our ring bearer, and uh, we got him, we convinced him to be a ring bearer because we told him that he could watch Veggie Tales before the wedding. 
in the room. So we had a TV set up. You remember v, v, VHS, kids, you won't remember VHS tapes. They're like long, big blocks of black, like plastic, and you stuck them into a machine and they played them. Um, they don't have anything like that in today's world, but we had VeggieTale cassettes that we'd put in VHS machines, and they'd play on the TV to keep our ring bearer occupied, and I remember the VeggieTale, that's the morning of my wedding, that's, that's what's in my mind, <laughs> yeah, and I remember uh, I put a special uh, bottle of, they used to, I don't know if they still have this or not, but they used to have uh, the spray you could buy at the, at the um, gas station, it was breath spray, and you could like, and I wanted, I wanted to make sure I did that before we, we did the kiss, uh, and, and I had it in my pocket, so I made sure that when he said that you can kiss the bride, I pulled it out, and I, I faced the congregation, and I gave myself two squirts, and Sheila's grandfather was in the front row, and he lost it. He just lost it. <laughs> and I just, I just remember all the details leading up to, to that preparation, and and that day, and, and so much, I wanted that kiss to be special. I didn't want to have bad breath. really wanted her to remember that one. It was spearmint, by the way, in case you were wondering. <laughs> we go through these things to make ourselves ready for these special moments in our lives. And this, what we see in verses 7 to 20, is an incredibly special moment in the nation's history. What's happening here is nothing short of beautiful. Let's just read a few verses starting in verse 9. And we'll continue to read through, but we'll pause as we do. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And it's at this point where we step back and we take a deep breath and prepare ourselves to receive what has actually happened. If we could just for a moment imagine ourselves as seated guests, witnesses at an ancient wedding ceremony. And this moment, it fills our imagination with images of love. It's a revelation of God's righteousness, his unconditional, loyal, faithful, and sacrificial love given freely with boundaries or guideposts that will help serve to form the people he was calling. First, the sanctuary needed to be made ready. Both the peoples and the place must be prepared on the morning of our wedding. The flower person forgot our flowers. I remember that. The sanctuary seemed a little less bright until my father sprung to the rescue and went and was able to get flowers at a local flower shop to fill the sanctuary. But we take time to prepare ourselves and prepare these spaces. Look at verse 12. You must set boundaries for all the people all around, saying, take heed to yourselves not to go up on the mountain nor touch its edge, Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. No hand will touch him, but he will surely be stoned or shot through. Whether a beast or a human being, he must not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. Moses is going to wear many hats in this event, as he does often in his leadership. He is in many ways like the father of the bride preparing to walk his beloved daughter down the aisle. 
He's also in many ways like the pastor or officiate. In this case, we might even use the word mediator. He's also part of the bride. In verses 9 to 13, the grooms instructed Moses how he desires the sanctuary and the bride to be prepared. Look at verse 14. Then Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not approach your wives for marital relations. Something incredibly special is happening here God has loved his people well. And his people are learning how to love him and love one another well. And together, they've already been through so very much. Over the course of the three days, they prepare one for the other. And then on the third day, the veil is lifted And the eyes of the bride rise to meet her groom who has powerfully announced his presence on the mountain. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of the kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. So we have this, first we have this beautiful imagery of this wedding. But second, when we hear this terminology on the third day. And we see lightning and thunderclouds and this magnificent revelation of the Lord. Where else does our mind go on the third day? day who came forth from the tomb there's so much happening here and it's incredible in this special manifestation of god's presence both the people and the mountains are trembling it's an event that's filled with both certainty and it's, it's filled with mystery. One that's filled with smoke and fire and this increasing audible intensity, noise. The bride takes her place at the foot of the mountain. The groom is present through the smoke and the fire just as he was with Abraham. God is alive. It's alive. As the shofar horn grows louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered. God answers Moses. An affirmation of both his, Moses' relationship with God and his position of leadership that God has called him to with the people. God is with Moses. And in the rash of great excitement that surrounded this moment, the people are left wanting more. But this sort of manifestation of God's presence is not something to be taken lightly. 
The people want to see, they want to look at the Lord, but God knows that this would be to their demise. So he instructs Moses to warn the people. I find it very interesting when Jesus rose from the dead, when he resurrected and came forth from the tomb, he could have appeared to so many more people, but do you remember he made himself hidden? Sometimes even disguised? This type of presence, there's something magnificently special about it. Look at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. There's so much reverence, awe as we grow in the faith. Sometimes we lose this love of just being in awe of God. And that's what these kinds of chapters in the Bible invite us back into. The childlike faith that Jesus both embraces and encourages that as we grow older, it gets harder and harder to cling to because we tend to love certainty more and more and mystery is scary to us. We run from it and yet our God is a God who is both certain, certainly with us and mysterious, mysteriously present among us in ways that we cannot fathom nor comprehend. It's amazing. We cannot take his presence, his grace, his mercy for granted. He is a holy God who wants to be with his people in holiness as well. The people had responded in verse 8 that all that the Lord had spoken, they would do. And living in accordance with God's assigned boundaries or limits would be a testimony that they were ready to obey and walk by faith as God's treasured possession on the earth. And remember, we talked a few weeks ago about this definition of holiness. Friends, a, a people who are holy, a people who are sanctified, who are consecrated or set apart, are a worshipful people. And a worshipful people are always a thankful people. And though, as the church, we are not Israel, the similarities are many. And the tones of this event, I love, they're captured in the New Testament in many different places. But one in particular I want to look at with you today is in Peter's letter to the believers in Rome. Peter says this in his letter to the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Sound familiar? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Same for Israel. Once they were enslaved. 
Once they were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, here we go, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify God. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be an emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. I love this. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We talk about being broken and poured out in community with one another. Servants, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the empire or the emperor. When God forms a nation, he shapes and sharpens its leaders through his own voice and the voice of faithful guides and mentors. When God forms a nation, he reveals himself and makes his promises known to his people, calling them towards the habitudes of obedience and faithfulness. And church, we respond in obedience and in trust. And in turn, he uses us in some mysterious, miraculous way to bring glory to himself and make himself known to others. And today, we get to practice a part of this community formation that we're a part of as the Holy Spirit works within our faith community here at CNBC. We get to rehearse and rejoice through remembering and proclaiming the body and the blood of Jesus in communion with God and one another. And so our team's going to come this morning, and our elders, I would invite them at this time to head to the back as we prepare to serve communion. And we're going to prepare our hearts through the ministry of music. And this often empty and dead wilderness that we wander in here, it makes us so very grateful for the ever full and living realities that were present in the garden on that resurrection morning. Imagine how Mary's grief was turned to exuberance as she turned and saw Jesus, the suffering servant who had been broken and poured out, standing in the flesh, feet firmly anchored in the firmament, scars and all finished. <laughs>